0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Connect More. My name is Sarah heise Grabeel. I am a life coach, writer, and researcher and the host of this podcast where we talk about connection, why we need it, why the systems we live under make it very hard for us to get it, and how to build it anyway because it's just that important. Particular focuses here are race, class, and gender, and how white supremacy, capitalism, and the patriarchy factor into our social lives, our family building, and our parenting. Stay tuned at the end for information on how to be in touch with me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome back everyone to episode two of Connect More. We are diving in real deep, real fast over here because the topic of our second episode is when your life is 99% white. You could replace the 99 with 95 or even 90, but regardless, I wanna be clear that I'm addressing white people here. So there's certainly people of color in America who are very much surrounded by white people. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm mostly talking about what to do when you are a white person in America who looks around you and realizes your world is actually quite segregated. And maybe like even if you're in the process of noticing that right now, as I say it, maybe there's some shame that comes up or some guilt or even a desire to just turn the podcast off. Totally understandable. I get it. However, I want to reassure you that what I'm going to talk about today is not some list of like personal failings that leads white people to not have relationships across race. I am going to talk in many subsequent episodes about kind of types of thoughts and types of lessons that we as white people have internalized that can make it hard for us to build these relationships. But I'm not even going to talk about that today. Today, I'm really talking about the set of systems that Motivate us collectively as white people to work pretty hard to be around other white people and that really ultimately perpetuate segregation. This has big impacts on us. It also has big impacts on people of color and it has pretty huge impacts on all of our kids. So let me back up a little. You know, I got into connection coaching after becoming a parent myself. I'm a single mom to one biracial child. And as some of my high school and college friends were becoming parents, uh, maybe a couple years after I had my son, I started to hear questions from them about like, how do I teach my child to be empathetic and not have racial biases? And particularly, how do I do that when most people in my own personal community are white? You know, this was also happening around the time of the pandemic. So understandably, it was like, I don't know how to t- like, my child is not getting any practice in seeing faces of people from different racial backgrounds. Also, my child is literally only seeing my face and my husband's face ever. That's an understandably super complicated challenge that, you know, we kind of all collectively went through in different ways. Um, But I think there is a greater issue here of like, even when not in times of pandemic isolation, to what extent are a lot of white kids getting raised in environments where they just really don't see and don't spend kind of close up friend time with kids from other racial backgrounds than their own. And so questions I was getting from different people I know were like, you know, I'm going to get these picture books I've heard are good. I'm going to like, warn my child not to touch kids of color's hair. I'm going to like put him in a preliminary Spanish class. I don't know. But like, what do I say to him about race beyond that? And my own answer to that, having lived a life that has been very oriented toward connecting with people across difference for, I would say like, two decades now since I was a young teen and I'll get into at some point kind of why I think that happened for me and like where that urge came from and all of that, because it's not, I'm not saying that to be like, I've just always understood this. That's not the case at all. Um, I just, you know, for various reasons ended up on a route where I started doing this work pretty early. And so my own answer to those questions that, um, you know people in my life were asking was like there is not a magic list there's not like a magic a magic like set of boxes that you can check that will then like qualify your child as being prepared to show up in an anti racist way a lot of how you want to go about instilling these values in your child actually is going to come down to your own backstory and the relationships and connections that you have and how those things inform your beliefs and your understanding of the world. The problem, though, is what happens when you you yourself, you the adult, don't have those relationships or those connections. And that's really what I was hearing from people in my life was like, I don't have these personal connections like you, Sarah, do. So I'm hoping you can tell me what you know from these relationships you have, and I can take that back and apply it in my parenting. I'm not criticizing that approach at all. In fact, I really appreciated people's, I think, like, honesty and courage in coming to me and saying this. Um, Ultimately, though, the truth is I can't impart wisdom on behalf of people of color I know. And that's like, maybe there's a part of that that's kind of like ethical, but I think the bigger thing is just there's no way for me to be certain enough about the experience of people of color, even people of color I'm very close to or who are very deeply in my life, to, be, to think that I could then kind of like sum that up and hand it over as an anecdote to a white friend and the white friend could then somehow apply this in teaching their child something, right? There's just, I I, sh- I can't really be the messenger for that. What I can impart though is wisdom I have from investing lots of time and energy in building community and relationships across race, right? So like not what I've learned about people of different racial backgrounds, but what I've learned about how as a white person to go about building those relationships. So that became the focus of my coaching. Like what are the tools and mindset shifts and frameworks I can offer to white people who are invested in creating diverse community? And it should go without saying, you don't need a coach or a podcast in order to learn these things. You can just take the plunge and figure it out. My perspective is, you know, the anti-racism realm is one in which there is a fair amount of tough love, I guess I'll call it. And that's totally okay. Totally justified, totally legitimate. I do think sometimes the on the ground impact that that has is it kind of just makes people want to walk in the other direction. You know, you can call it white fragility, you can call it whatever you want. But I think if I can support white people in the early stages of a process of community building across difference. And if I can do that in a way that is encouraging, I want to do that so that you don't just like have a bad experience, have a lot of feelings, conclude that it's too hard, and never try it again. That's what I really don't want for anyone. Because it doesn't do justice to what you have to offer the world, right? To kind of have one bad experience and not come back from that doesn't do justice to the wonderful person you are, not just for other white people, but for all kinds of people, the wonderful person you could be in all kinds of people's lives. So I'm building here on my experiences and the knowledge and wisdom I've gained from listening to a lot of people of color that I trust and love over the years, also from talking to a lot of other white people about how they do this personal work and sharing that knowledge here. So that if you're a person or a parent who wants to like broaden and expand your own community, you have a support system in place, you have a cheerleader, you have a solid place to start. Okay. So here's a fun fact. In its first iteration, this podcast was going to be called Why Is My Life So White? And I had like a little visual, like this white girl being like, what? Like shrugging, like, why is my life so white? Ultimately, uh, I think I chose a title that holds space for a lot of different kinds of connection building. Um, and, and I'm grateful for that. But I still think that the original you know, title question for this podcast is useful, not just in terms of interrogating racial segregation, but all kinds of segregation. So you could remove the word white and just fill in the blank with whatever other dominant identity you have and also feel surrounded by. Does that make sense? So it might be like, Why is my life so Christian? AKA, I'm a Christian. I'm also surrounded by other Christians. Why are there so many Christians in my life? It might be, why is my life so straight? It might be, why is my life so well off? Not meaning like, why am I rich? But like, why am I surrounded basically only by people who are in this same income bracket as I am? Why is my life so male? Why is my life so college educated, et cetera, et cetera. And for a lot of these questions, the answer is roughly the same. And it's that the system is set up this way. America is a segregated place. And I speak of segregation in all the different ways I mentioned previously. So that if, like, for example, you were born into a white Protestant household with two college-educated parents who are married, who between them make a really nice living, chances are you are going, I don't mean to make this sound like, um, like doomsday. And of course, there's nothing wrong with this reality in itself, but chances are you're probably going to end up living in a neighborhood with other white Protestant families who are college educated and make a really nice living. Okay. At every stage in American history, governmental policies have functioned in such a way as to facilitate neighborhood and community building among groups of people who share these dominant qualities. And sidebar, like by dominant, I just mean, These qualities that have tended to be in the majority of the American population historically and among whom wealth and power have tended to be concentrated. Let's take an example. Because of the obvious historical institutions of slavery and Jim Crow, right, as well as the more contemporary institutions of redlining, et cetera, it is not a surprise that Like, not only are wealth and power concentrated among historically favored groups, but that these groups are literally geographically isolated from the rest of society. Did you get that? So it's not just that wealth and power continue to be concentrated among historically favored groups, but that these historically favored groups with their wealth and power tend to wind up geographically isolated from the rest of the country. And I'm saying that in the way that I am saying it on purpose. I'm not saying low income people or people of color live in highly segregated neighborhoods. No, we are flipping the script on what segregation looks like and who participates in it, right? Because white people, shoot, I don't know who... trying to think if this is like a quote from someone in particular, or if it's just a statistic, I'm going to look this up and I'll include it in the show notes if there's like someone to be cited for this, but white people are the most segregated people in America, period. Okay. So what this means is you can grow up white and middle to upper class in this country and not have a single close relationship with a person of color. You can grow up white and socioeconomically privileged in this country and not personally know anyone who lives month to month, meaning like, you know, doesn't have a pile of savings somewhere to bail them out if they lose their job. You can grow up white and middle to upper class in this country and not know anyone who has ever been to jail. Despite the fact that this country has the highest incarceration rates in the world, and there are plenty of neighborhoods across this country where an average child is closely connected to more than one person who is currently in prison, okay? And there is an impact on kids who are raised to parents with progressive values, parents who advocate for anti-racist policies and who have like a kind of ingrained respect for diversity, but who do not know a single person from a drastically different background from their own. There is an impact on those kids who are growing up in an environment of extreme dissonance, right? With parents who profess to have certain values, but who are not living out those values in their day-to-day relationships. And I do not say that in, um, with the intention of guilting or criticizing, right? I just say that kind of as like factual information, that it is confusing, okay, for children, because it's one thing to learn in a picture book that everybody's equal. Everybody has gifts to share, right? Everybody can learn from everybody else. But then when you look around and you see, well, if everybody has a gift to share, why are my parents not friends with anybody from any of these different backgrounds? Is the book true, right? Then that confusion begins. It's a totally different thing to know that everybody's equal because you are being raised in a truly diverse environment where you have real relationships with people who are different from you. So that when, when that's the case, the lesson everybody's equal is not going to be like a sentence you have in your head. It is going to be something that you know so deeply within you that later in life when that gets challenged by somebody, you are not going to have to like refer back to a thing you learned once to prove it. You are simply going to know it and you are going to be driven to act on it. Okay? So what I say when I work with parents who want to raise their kids with anti-racist values, but also just to say like when I work with child-free adults who just wish their own circles were more diverse, what I say is you do not have to lead a segregated life just because that is the default for people of your racial and socioeconomic background in America, okay? It is not a, you are not trapped. In the system, you live within the system, but you are not trapped inside it. The more you can actively work against the trend of segregation, the more connected your own life will be and the more good you are going to be able to do in the world because the better you will understand the world. This, I, I know I'm making a lot of big claims right now, but I swear I will back these and more up. You just got to keep listening, okay? So for now, what I wanna say about kind of like the moral imperative of working against segregation is white supremacy thrives in predominantly and exclusively white spaces. The more white people of economic means can do to break down and diffuse those white spaces, the less oxygen white supremacy has with which to breathe and flourish. So that makes, that alone, in addition to all the personal benefits, right? But that fact alone makes centering diversity in your life a really important thing to do. And in fact, I would argue something close to a moral obligation for people who are committed to battling racism and classism in our country. It also doesn't have to look one way. I'm gonna get to that in just a second. But in case you're thinking, I'm telling you, you have to sell your house, you have to move into a different neighborhood, you have to take a different job, but like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. It doesn't have to look a certain way, okay? It just has to look like commitment of some type. Here's where things can get tricky. A lot of the white middle to upper class people who hold values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example, Acquired these values through a kind of like 21st century liberal arts education that I'm going to argue did us a bit of a disservice. Okay. I had a beautiful liberal arts education. I would not trade it. It doesn't mean there weren't problems with it. I think the biggest problem with liberal arts education today is that it emphasizes so strongly all the wrong ways in which to interact across cultures. We're going to like dissect each of those wrong ways in further episodes because I have so much to say about all of them, but it emphasizes so strongly all the pitfalls that it leaves people feeling rather hopeless in applying their values to their everyday lives. I'm going to give you an example. Like, If you think that as a white person, it is virtually impossible to interact with people of color without committing constant microaggressions. Okay, which is very easy to believe that that's true, that it is virtually impossible for you to pull that off when you've gone through a liberal arts education. If you believe that, and you're someone who cares about other people and you don't wanna harm anyone, it's going to be very difficult for you to bring yourself to try to strike up connections with people who are not like you. Okay, so that is like an internal barrier that is really strong. That's in addition to the structural obstacle of physical segregation that we already talked about, the whole systems piece. So when you put all those together, building cross-race and cross-class relationships can start to feel completely overwhelming. That is where this podcast comes in. Okay, there are two big takeaways I want you to understand about committing to anti-racism when your life is 99% white. Here's the first thing. You did not create the systems that have placed you in the situation you're in. You may have bought the house in the neighborhood that's predominantly white, okay? You may have put your kid in a school that's predominantly white. You may have chosen a set of extracurriculars that are predominantly white. You may have chosen a church that's predominantly, all these things. You may have made all these choices. It's very good to recognize that. Also, there is nothing wrong with you or shameful about you that caused you in some like unique way to make these choices. These choices are deeply ingrained and incentivized by our American systems, which is why so many people make them, right? Like if tons of other people weren't making the same choices, you wouldn't be finding so many white people to be in community with in all the places where you were also choosing to be. You did not create these systems. The second takeaway is... You are totally capable of making different choices now. And like, yeah, for some people that ends up being, I'm selling my house. I want to live somewhere more diverse. I want to change my whole life now that I see how incredibly important this is. For a lot of people, it does not look like that. It looks a lot smaller. But I want to say like, I don't know, some people might argue with me on this. I want to say smaller, but perhaps no less significant. It might look like committing real time and energy to making friendships across race. It might mean committing a significant amount of time to a volunteering opportunity where you're going to become part of a whole other community. It might mean traveling in a very intentional way with your child for one month every summer. It might mean uh, making a significant commitment of resources towards some ongoing mutual aid effort, whatever it is. The tools, the mindset shifts, the frameworks, the lessons that you're going to get here on this podcast will empower you to make choices that will make your life less white. Here's another thing. You might keep that big house in the all-white neighborhood, whatever, whatever. You might expand your community and your connections in some totally different way. And then you might begin hosting like big gatherings at your house where you are using the resources that you have to diversify a space that was not diverse at all. There's all these nuances to all of this. And like, I don't want to get too deep into any one example, because I want to make sure I'm being really clear. But like, it's not this isn't like, throw away your money and do this other thing. This is like, how can your life become much more connective and connected? across race and across class in a way that is going to enable you to um, contribute and share resources in a way where you were coming towards people, not like throwing your money in the air and running the other way, okay? I wanna speak to something I said a little while ago, which was something about empowering you to make choices that will make your life less white. And I could just kind of hear in my voice as I in my head as I said that someone's voice saying, why is it so bad for my life to be white? Right. And I just want to kind of reiterate the ways that white supremacy thrives when it manages to get white people together and keep them together isolated from other people and communities. Because when this happens, it teaches, it allows kind of these pockets of white people to um, believe that their norms, their ways of doing things, their customs, their beliefs, their expectations, all of these things are not just inherent to this like pocket of white America, but that they represent America as a whole, right? That dominant culture gets transposed onto um all of America and an expectation of all what all of America should be. That is literally like the tentacles of white supremacy extending out and out. And that is really, gosh, what is even the appropriate adjective for that? Um, It's terrifying. It's what's happened throughout American history. And it's, um, it's, really one of the biggest things I believe that in this country we need to come together to fight against. Because it is that assumption of the correctness of whiteness that leads to so many other vicious, enormous problems relating to race, police brutality, mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I hope that's clear. The more we are able to integrate our lives across race and class, the more we contribute to the destabilization of white supremacy, and that is valuable in an incalculable way. And it will help us so much as we raise our kids to be anti-racist. We're going to delve into that part, the parenting part, a lot more soon. I'm going to leave that here for now. So please feel free to binge my content on Instagram. My Instagram is linked in the show notes. Reach out, send me a DM, introduce yourself. I would love to hear from you. My goal here is to empower you. I just wanna like say this. My goal here is to empower you to believe in your ability to build positive relationships across class and race because you can and to take real action in order to live your day-to-day life in a way that represents the values that are meaningful to you because you can totally do that too, okay? I fully believe in you. I will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Connect More. If you'd like to see more of my work, please check me out on Instagram. The link is included in the show notes. I offer one-on-one life coaching, and also I have a number of workshops and other opportunities coming up. And feel free to just reach out. Send me a DM. Introduce yourself. I'd love to talk to you. The artwork for this podcast was designed by me. The music for this podcast was produced by Rafik Davis of Philadelphia. Take care. and Talk to you soon.